Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, tell them to freak SWAT to shoot me down because they're going to have to shoot me down today. Remember that. Where are they diverting us? Because wherever it is, there's going to be a bloodbath everywhere. You can all run away if you want. If you're men, you can run. I won't kill you. My fault is on. Just a terrifying moment again in the sky. We are glad you're with us this morning. It is Tuesday, but look what happened on that United flight. A passenger accused of trying to stab a flight attendant after trying to open the emergency exit door later. We're going to speak with the person on that plane who actually filmed that video. Not something you want to hear on a plane or anywhere, but especially on a plane. Plus, Americans kidnapped at gunpoint in Mexico. Possibly a case of mistaken identity. What we're now hearing from their family as a desperate search continues. And it looks like Weight Watchers could be getting in the Ozempic weight loss craze that's been happening. CNN This Morning starts right now. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. We do begin with another terrifying incident in the sky. Federal investigators say this man tried to open an emergency exit door on a plane, then tried to stab a flight attendant in the neck with a broken metal spoon. This was during a United flight from Los Angeles to Boston yesterday. Other passengers tackled and restrained him. Watch this video. You can put up your hands and say, don't kill me then, or don't approach me because I'm bald this hard. As renamed by God, Baltar, since I'm taking over this plane. Oh my God. Dude, I'm telling you right now. Oh no. I'm telling you right now. So we're going to be joined by the woman who filmed that video in our 8 o'clock hour. She says the flight was quiet for five hours until that suspect went into the bathroom with a backpack, came out agitated with that broken spoon. She also says that he was zip-tied for the rest of the flight. We've seen a whole string of scary incidents recently that are putting a spotlight on aviation safety. On Sunday, a Southwest flight from Cuba to Florida was forced to make an emergency landing. That's after birds hit the engine. Police say severe turbulence killed a woman on a private business jet flying from New Hampshire to Virginia over the weekend. And just yesterday, the tail and a wing of two United flights collided on the tarmac at Boston's Logan International Airport. That was low speed. No one was hurt. But the FAA is investigating several recent close calls between planes, including the incident at the same airport last week when a JetBlue flight nearly collided with a private jet as it was landing. Not only to try to allegedly stab the flight attendant, well, there's video of it, he did. But he tried to open the door yeah. in mid-flight. They yeah. got an emergency yeah. alarm that the door to the plane had been disarmed. And that's and the slides, whatever, the slide lever had been disarmed as well. So that is really, really frightening. I, you know, what do you say? You don't want to hear, I'm taking over this plane, you're going to die. You don't want to hear that. It takes you right back. Anywhere, but to the, yeah. It takes you right back. go there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we're going to move on now. This morning, we now know that the identities of four Americans missing in Mexico after being kidnapped at gunpoint. Family members say Latavia Washington McGee, Shahid Woodward, and Zindel Brown and their friend Eric were traveling, so one of them could undergo a medical procedure. Investigators believe that they were targeted by a Mexican cartel in a case of mistaken identity. CNN's Rosa Flores live in Houston with more this morning. Rosa, good morning. Latest on the investigation. You know, Don, very little is being released by both Mexico and U.S. authorities, but we are learning more about these missing Americans from their loved ones. Their loved ones telling CNN that these are a group of friends. They're very tight group of friends. They're from South Carolina, and they include a mom of six who was supposed to be in Mexico for a medical procedure, but she never made her appointment. Four U.S. citizens were kidnapped by gunmen in Mexico in a case of mistaken identity, according to a U.S. official. Investigators believe the Mexican cartel likely mistook the Americans for Haitian drug smugglers, according to the U.S. official. Family members told CNN the group was traveling to Mexico for a medical procedure. According to the FBI, the four crossed the border in a white minivan with North Carolina license plates on Friday when they were fired upon by unidentified gunmen and were placed in another vehicle and taken from the scene. An innocent Mexican citizen was also killed in the encounter. In this video obtained by CNN, armed men are putting four people in the bed of a white pickup truck. It's unclear if they're the missing Americans. In this photo, a woman is sitting next to three people outside a white minivan with all the doors open. The FBI would not authenticate the images, but a U.S. official with knowledge of the investigation authenticated them. The four were assaulted and kidnapped in Matamoros, Mexico, a northern city in the state of Tamaulipas. The incident highlights the ongoing violence in some Mexican cities, which have been racked by organized crime, at least since the Mexican drug war began in 2006. We do also remind Americans about the existing travel guidance when it comes to this uh, particular part of Mexico. The travel advisory for uh, Tamaulipas State remains at level four. Do not travel. Uh, we encourage Americans to heed that heed that advice. The kidnapped Americans were not identified by officials, but two families from Lake City, South Carolina, confirmed to CNN their loved ones are among those kidnapped. Zalandria Brown says she spoke to the FBI on Sunday when she realized her brother Zindel Brown and his three friends, Latavia Washington McKee, Shahid Woodward and their friend Eric were missing in Mexico. Brown's mother says she didn't know her son was traveling to Mexico. When I found out, he was en route in Mississippi. Brown's sister tells CNN affiliate WPDE that she was uneasy about his trip. I told him I had a dream. You know, I said, so I'm just checking on you. That's what I told him Thursday. And then, like I said, Friday morning, I texted and I didn't get anything. McKee's mother, Barbara Burgess, says she last spoke to her daughter on Friday. On Sunday, the FBI told her McKee was kidnapped and in danger. Burgess is hopeful for her daughter, who is the mother of six children, will be released. These sorts of attacks are unacceptable. Our thoughts are with the families of these individuals, and we stand ready to provide all appropriate consular assistance. Rosa, I know you know the border well, and I'm wondering how common is it for Americans along the border to go to Mexico for medical care? You know, Don, it happens every day. I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. I grew up going to Mexico for medical care. Uh, when you're a you know, border kid and you don't have money for 
uh, medical care in the United States. That's what you do. That's what a lot of families do. Now, of course, word is spread and there's medical tourism, if you will, uh, individuals from other parts of the country that go to uh, these Mexican border towns to get medical care, to get procedures. But I can tell you from growing up there, uh, when you grow up there, when you know people on both sides of the border, the way that it usually works is uh, you have the cell numbers or WhatsApp um, numbers for individuals who live on the Mexican side. And what usually happens is you call a few people and you say, hey, how's it going? How's the situation in Mexico? If everything's okay, you cross. The other thing that that I know we did growing up is you also um, determine what bridge you're going to cross over based on how safe it is. Now, what I mean is uh, this happened in Matamoros, Mexico, just about 35 miles to the west is Progreso, Texas, Nuevo Progreso, Mexico. And so, Don, what happens in that location is you can drive to Progreso, Texas, park your car on the American side, walk across the bridge, and just yards from that international bridge, there are dentists, uh, general practitioners. And so, again, there's a lot of local knowledge that is exchanged when individuals go and get medical attention in the Mexican side. Um, But again... A lot of that is information that the locals have. These individuals were coming from out of state. I don't know what kind of connections they had. But again, back to your question, it is very common. People do it every single day. Yeah, and we'll be paying a lot more attention to it, after, especially after this. Thank you, Rosa Flores. I want to turn to some news that was first broken here on CNN. Former Vice President Mike Pence has asked a judge to block a federal grand jury subpoena compelling his testimony about January 6th on the grounds that he is protected by the Constitution's speech or debate clause. A source tells me that his legal team filed the motion on Friday, the same day that Trump's legal team argued to block that subpoena because of executive privilege. Pence's team is arguing something differently, though, hoping to block him from testifying about anything pertaining to his legislative functions that day. That could potentially be a pretty significant part of his testimony. This is because the former vice president is arguing that because he was also acting as the president of the Senate on January 6th, he is shielded by the speech or debate clause. That is something that you've seen other lawmakers invoke. It protects them from certain law enforcement actions targeted at their legislative duties. One thing that could complicate matters here is that Pence has written a memoir detailing his interactions with his boss at the time, former President Trump, leading up to those Capitol attacks. And that is something Justice Department will likely push back on, whether it comes to the executive privilege argument that Trump is making for why he shouldn't testify or what Pence is arguing here on speech and debate. It's your reporting. I was fascinated by the fact that he's saying, well, this was in my capacity vis-a-vis the Senate that day. Yeah, It, it could be a legal argument that works. We don't know. All right, uh, let's move on to this. The FBI has issued an arrest warrant for the January 6th defendant who seems to have gone missing ahead of her trial. The FBI is looking for this woman, that's Olivia Pollack, after she failed to show up in court yesterday in Washington, D.C. And according to this warrant, court officials haven't been able to locate her since late February. Our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, joins us now with more. What have you learned about the defendant? Poppy, this is pretty wild. As you just said, they've been looking for her since late last month, but they kept this search under wraps until she failed to show up for her trial yesterday. Now, she is charged with four other co-defendants in what is described by prosecutors as a coordinated attack on law enforcement. She specifically is accused of elbowing an officer in the chest and trying to strip away an officer's baton during the attack. But hers wasn't the only warrant issued yesterday. They also issued a warrant for her co-defendant, Joseph Hutchinson. He is accused though, of pulling back a fence 
during the riot that allowed rioters to swarm police who were trying to defend the Capitol. He's also accused of punching and grabbing the sleeve of an officer. Now, both of them are still scheduled to be tried later this year, but that is only if, of course, they can be located. One of the things that is interesting is, like a lot of the defendants, because there are hundreds, she wasn't held in jail before the trial, right? Yeah. She, I believe she had a GPS monitoring system, which you would think yes. wouldn't be able to get past federal monitoring. What Do we know why? You would think, Poppy, but we've learned uh, that the FBI allegedly believes that both Pollock and Hutchinson tampered with or removed their ankle monitors. Hmm. Now, publicly, an FBI official says they have retrieved one of the monitors, though it's unclear whose monitor uh, they have retrieved. And at this time, they're both missing. Okay, Paula Reed, thank you for the reporting. Update us when you hear more. Thanks. Also this morning, we are watching Fox News and how they are getting special access to footage from January 6th. This is something that premiered last night on Tucker Carlson's show. And what appeared to be an attempt to rewrite what happened on January 6th is they revealed a portion of the 40,000 hours of footage that was given to Fox News and only to Fox News by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Tucker Carlson aired a portion of the video uh, talking about what happened that day and what appeared to be an attempt to sanitize it. The crowd was enormous. A small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. You've seen their pictures again and again. But the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously revere the Capitol. Of course, many of the people that you see in these videos here, as Bobby was just referencing, and as we've covered here at CNN, were actually charged with crimes for what happened on January 6th. 326 people were charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers or employees. The Justice Department says 140 officers were assaulted that day at the Capitol. Some left with head wounds, cracked ribs, smashed spinal discs, and burns. Joining us now to talk about this is CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher. We knew this was coming. We knew that he had got access to this. And you've seen Kevin McCarthy say that he is trying to widely disseminate more of it. Uh, but so far, they've only given it to one outlet. Yeah, he says it was an exclusive to Fox News. But the problem, Caitlin, is that an exclusive is done so that you can set the tone of a story. Once you give it to other outlets, of course, CNN, Axios, others are going to try to analyze it the best that they can. And their analysis will definitely look different. But now a narrative has been set. Don just was holding up a New York Post that shows the tour de farce. This is an example of when you give an exclusive how the narrative is set for the next day and the next coming days. And remember, Tucker Carlson said he's going to release more footage tonight. So it's not like we're going to get that access immediately. Mm. Go. No, 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 no. Go. You've been talking about this all morning. I've been talking about it for not just all morning. But, I mean, this is, again, the the danger of when um, Kevin McCarthy and this also relationship that we're talking about with Fox News. Look at the the situation that they're in now with Dominion. Um, But then this is the danger of not fairness, unfairness. You should give it to every news organization at the same time so that they're able to, as you say, analyze it in each in real time and not one, uh, particularly, especially someone who is not considered to be a journalist, to be able to 
disseminate it and give his take on it. I mean, my take on it is if Kevin McCarthy thought that there was something really problematic in the way that the media writ large covered January 6th and that these tapes disproved it, you'd give it to your colleagues in Congress right. and you'd let them run an investigation on it. You wouldn't do an exclusive leak. But let's take a 30,000 foot view. I cover media, I cover tech. This is becoming a bigger trend. You have Elon Musk handpicking journalists that he's going to do these big doc dumps with so that they can set a narrative around what's happening there. You have Kevin McCarthy doing the same thing at Fox. This is how you create this shock and awe factor so that you can recreate the narratives that you want. It's the new tactic for people in power. So don't expect this to go away. Moving forward, expect a lot of people in power to pick their favorite outlets and journalists and do these leaks. I just keep coming back to the people who died. And let's take Officer Brian Sicknick, for example. Tucker Carlson addressed him on the show last night. Let's play that and then hear from Sicknick's family. Here was Tucker. Here is surveillance footage of Sicknick walking in the Capitol after he was supposedly murdered by the mob outside. By all appearances, Sicknick is healthy and vigorous. He's wearing a helmet, so it's hard to imagine he was killed by a head injury. Whatever happened to Brian Sicknick was very obviously not the result of violence he suffered at the entrance to the Capitol. This tape overturns the single most powerful and politically useful lie the Democrats have told us about January 6th. So for the Sicknick's family and on their part, they say doing things like that, uh, it says organizations like Fox rip our wounds wide open. And just looking back at what the medical examiner said, although they said, yes, he died of natural causes, the medical examiner went on to say, quote, all that transpired, meaning on January 6th, the day before he died, quote, played a role in his condition. These are real people who died. Yeah, and trying to sanitize that day is trying to sanitize the deaths of all the people that occurred that day and all the people who maybe they didn't die, but they've suffered a lot of mental illness. They suffered a lot in the following. Think about the Capitol Police officers, the Capitol Hill staff members, Mm -hmm. you know, people even from Kevin McCarthy's own staff who were inside that building. It's tragic to watch this play out, and I hope that those tapes get released more broadly so that the media can cover what really happened factually moving forward. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that when you see what they're talking about, what you see on the footage of how the Capitol Police officers are acting that day, is that a lot of them testified. They felt like they couldn't really engage in a certain way with the rioters because they were outnumbered. They were so greatly outnumbered that they were worried about escalating it. So when they try to say, oh, well, they're just walking them through, they're doing this, that was actually uh, their testimony. We'll see what footage. Can I just read this, please? I'm sorry. Every time the pain of that day seems to have ebbed a bit, organizations like Fox rip our wounds wide open again, and we are frankly sick of it. That's from the sickening. Yeah, it's devastating. Sarah Fisher, thanks so much. Thank you. New overnight, the Secretary of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made a surprise trip to Iraq. CNN has new details about his visit. And happening today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' culture war agenda getting a boost from his state's legislature. We're going to tell you the new proposals on the table. We're looking at a live picture now, the moon over Miami. Sounds like a movie, right? (laughs) CNN This Morning continues next. New overnight, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made an unannounced trip to Iraq. He just landed in Erbil after meeting with Iraq's prime minister and other senior officials in Baghdad. Austin is the highest ranking member of President Biden's cabinet to visit the country so far. It comes just days before the 20th anniversary. Hard to believe it's been that long 
of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq that ousted the dictator Saddam Hussein. Today, Austin reaffirmed America's commitment to keeping troops on the ground there. Now, these forces are operating in a non-combat, advise, assist, and enable role to support the Iraqi-led fight against terrorism. This is a critical mission, and we're proud to support our Iraqi partners. But we must be able to operate safely and securely to continue this vital work. This morning, Florida state legislature is beginning a new term, continuing Governor Ron DeSantis' self-declared war on wokeness, loosening gun restrictions, making it easier to sue the news media, further restricting abortion and sweeping education changes are just some of the more than 1,600 measures Republican lawmakers are taking on in the next nine weeks. Leila Santiago, live in Tallahassee with more this morning. Good morning to you. What do we expect from Ron DeSantis today? Well, good morning to you, Don. Today, we expect Governor Ron DeSantis to give his state of the state address. And if that is anything like what we've heard from him over the last few days as he has promoted his recently released book, yes, you can absolutely expect for him to talk about that war on wokeness you mentioned, Don, especially in the classrooms. The bill prohibits classroom instruction about sexuality or things like transgender. This is inappropriate. Trans lives matter! Florida is where woke goes to die. One of the latest targets for Florida's war on woke, the classroom. Republicans introducing bill after bill aimed at changing education. And I believe parents in the state of Florida should be able to send their kids to elementary school without having an agenda jammed down their throats. I believe firmly that public education is the ultimate equalizer. And if we erode and restrict access to that, then we are, we are shifting the trajectory of the future of this state. As lawmakers head to the state capitol this week, a wish list for Governor Ron DeSantis and his allies pushing to reshape education from pre-K through college. On the table, a bill that eliminates diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at public universities, prohibits instruction on gender studies and critical race theory. It also ends protections for tenured faculty. No more discrimination. We're going to promote marriage. This proposed legislation bans any requirement to use pronouns deemed incongruent with the person's sex in schools. And it also bans classroom instruction related to sexual orientation or gender identity until ninth grade. They should not be teaching a second grader that they can choose their gender. That is wrong. This proposal creates a new statewide standard for sex education, requiring teaching that, quote, biological males impregnate biological females. We need to spend time on teaching kids the basics and when there are things that are injected that are clearly inappropriate, you know, make sure that we're, we're, we're not doing that. This bill establishes a universal school choice voucher program and expands who is eligible to receive a school voucher scholarship. That basically raises the bar for everyone. With the Republican-controlled legislature, the bill could add to the list of political victories for Governor Ron DeSantis to tout as he gets set to embark on an expected 2024 presidential campaign. I think we've gotten it right on all the key issues, and I think these liberal states have gotten it wrong. I think it goes back to this woke mind virus that's infected the left and all these other institutions. Everything is about out-trumping Trump, which means the policies before us are incredibly extreme, 
and not necessarily popular among every Floridian, but more attempting to appeal to a conservative base. Education has become the battleground for students, teachers, and for politicians. And a reminder, Republicans here, the supermajority, they control the House and they control the Senate. So if Republicans can get behind what is on this DeSantis agenda, in all likelihood, they will. This should be something that will be pretty easy for them to pass here. Woke, the new Republican buzzword. Thank you, Layla. Appreciate it. So major headlines about China overnight. China's warning of, quote, conflict and confrontation with the United States if Washington does not significantly change course. We'll explain right ahead. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. China's new foreign minister has issued quite a stern rebuke overnight of U.S. policies as tensions between the two largest economies in the world continue to soar. He says, quote, conflict and confrontation is inevitable if Washington does not change course. He also warned that there would be, quote, catastrophic consequences if things don't change. He defended Beijing's close partnership with Moscow. Let's go to Mark Stewart live in Tokyo with more. What I think is so interesting about him, Mark, is that this guy is a very accomplished sort of long-standing diplomat. So he knows the weight of his words and the fact that he said, if the United States doesn't hit the brakes but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing. What does that mean? Poppy, as you mentioned, this is this was, this man was China's top diplomat, appearing on Sunday talk shows. Yet he is using words that become more stern, more strong, uh, more pointed. And first of all, he is accusing the U.S. of trying to create a NATO-style alliance in Asia, going on to warn that if things persist, that there could be a Ukraine-like crisis again, under this backdrop of Asia. But that quote you pointed out, it's worth repeating because it is so focused and so targeted to the U.S. saying if the U.S. does not hit the brakes but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. These are really strong words. Also interesting to note today, Poppy, he also made reference once again to the U.S. Uh, shootdown of that suspected spy balloon, again suggesting it was an overreaction. What, what's also striking from this uh, is the fact that he essentially defended what U.S. intelligence officials are worried could be China providing lethal aid to Russia by saying, well, it would be the same as the defensive aid that the United States sells to, to Taiwan. What did you take from that? Oh, no question. Uh, when there was this opportunity to make this reference, to, to make this comparison to Taiwan, um, he did so. Um, but yet the U.S. has remained steadfast, saying that Taiwan is a sovereign nation mm -hmm. and that it has a right to defend itself. We also heard language from the government today saying that Taiwan is very much part of our territory and that we have the right to reunite it. A, a constant back and forth on a familiar on a familiar theme, but again, just reinforced further in a very public arena. Very public. Mark Stewart, thank you for the reporting. The Ozempic craze is getting another shot in the arm. Why Weight Watchers may now be getting in on the action over the popular prescription drug. We're going to discuss the significance and the safety next.
Weight Watchers customers could soon have access to prescription drugs. The company announcing yesterday that it will be purchasing telehealth subscription service sequence for $106 million. The service connects patients with doctors who can prescribe weight loss medication. That includes a diabetic, the diabetes drug, Ozempic. Let's get more now. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is here. Good morning to you, Elizabeth. This is very interesting considering, you know, everything that's going on with Ozempic. Weight Watchers is jumping in on this, um, you know, weight loss drug. This is a business move, but what do you know? Well, this is really interesting what Weight Watchers is doing with Sequence. So right now, anyone can go to the doctor, get a prescription for Ozempic or for Wegovy, which is, the same, which is really the same drug, and, you know, try to go to a pharmacy, try to get it. You might find a shortage, you might not. What they're doing is they're saying, look, you will pay us a certain amount of money per month, whatever that turns out to be, and we will help you with all that. We will set you up with the doctor. We will help you with telehealth visits. We will help you find the drug. You still have to pay for the drug. This doesn't mean that your drug will be paid for by Weight Watchers. You still have to pay for it. But they're kind of almost like a broker, if you can think of it that way, which really, when you think about how complicated the American medical system is, especially when a drug is in shortage, that is no small thing. So let's take a look at Ozempic. And again, everything I'm saying here would also go for Wegovy. What Wazimpic does is that it stimulates insulin, which lowers your blood sugar. It slows the passage of food through your gut so you feel fuller longer. What studies have shown is that people see an average of 10 to 15% weight loss, which if you're, you know, quite heavy, that is a lot. Speaking of which, take a look at this statistic. There's obviously a huge market for this. Nearly three out of four Americans are overweight, are overweight or obese. Don? That's if you can get it, right? Yeah, and there are people who are taking it. We were just talking about this who are not overweight at all. They just want to be thinner. Is Is there any danger? Like, what happens when you go off of it? You know what studies have shown, you know, they haven't studied people who just want to like lose a few pounds yeah. to look good in their bathing suit. Right. But when they study other people, when they go off of it, they gain the weight back. So when you're taking this, Um, During that time when you're taking it, if you can redo your diet and rethink how you eat and exercise, you could go off of it and keep the weight off. But if you're just taking the pill and that's it, that weight probably will come right back at you as soon as you're done with the pill. Well, again, as I said, that's if you can get it with the shortage. I know. Everyone is The diabetes patients need it. Yeah, I was at the pharmacy. I saw a diabetic patient. Could not get really? it because of the shortage. Yeah. And it didn't it was on the front of was that the New Yorker this week? It was like it's the whole on cover. the New Yorker. No, New York magazine. New York magazine. New York magazine's yeah. a whole cover. Yep. People are talking about it. Thanks, Elizabeth. Appreciate it. Also coming up this morning, there are rising tensions in Mississippi as lawmakers there are considering a bill that would create an unelected state-appointed court system in Jackson. Critics say it's a takeover of the city, which has the second highest percentage of black residents by white politicians. We're going to take you live on the ground next. Look at this. This morning, the Mississippi State Senate is going to resume consideration of a bill that would create an unelected state-appointed court system. This is something that is now drawing criticism. Essentially, what this would do is create this separate court system within the city, which we should note, according to U.S. Census data, is 83 percent black, that two state offices, both are currently held by white officials, would entirely appoint. CNN's Omar Jimenez has more. Whether it's the poverty or or violence, you don't think that the process is playing out right now is going to solve that? 
No, if they just give money to the Hines County District Attorney, even though he's elected, that doesn't solve the problem because you're not tackling the root of the problem. A plan to reshape Jackson, Mississippi's criminal justice system has been on a legislative journey. It was introduced in Mississippi's House of Representatives. That initial version singled out a section of the city that was disproportionately white to be under the jurisdiction of the state-run Capitol Police. The Senate version scraps the single district aspect of this and expands it citywide. But both plans would put the selection of judges and prosecutors in the hands of the majority white legislature, rather than the hands of residents in a city that's over 80% black, taking governing power away from local elected leaders and critics say disenfranchising voters. Even with the changes, it is still an attack on black leadership. Uh, it still is a Trojan horse cloaked uh, in the notion of public safety, uh, where it is not evidence-based. Legal leaders in Jackson believe there are better ways to address concerns that the current elected judiciary isn't able to keep up with the pace of cases. Both the House bill and the Senate proposal severely missed the mark. The real problem is that for decades, Hines County has needed at least two more elected permanent judges. Over the last few years, Jackson has seen a spike in violence. In 2021, one of the highest murder rates in the country. Supporters of this bill, including its Republican sponsor, have argued it would provide valuable reinforcements to the public safety ecosystem. This bill is designed to assist the court system of Hines County, not to hinder it. The Senate version of the bill would also expand the jurisdiction of the Capitol Police Force citywide, with the intention of them striking an agreement with the local police on how to police, in theory, together. But any dispute related to the law enforcement functions of the Office of Capitol Police within the boundaries of the city of Jackson, Mississippi, shall be resolved in favor of the commissioner of the Department of Public Safety. The mayor says he wouldn't sign it, but some residents are concerned state officers wouldn't be held to the same accountability as local ones. And the prospect of adding Capitol Police has specific fears for some. 25-year-old Jalen Lewis was shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer last year after an attempted traffic stop. I'm here today because I know there are bills that this legislature, this legislature has introduced that will expand Capitol Police's authority possibly to the entire city of Jackson, and that terrifies me. Now that shooting is still under investigation, but this bill is on the agenda when the Senate gets back into session later this morning. Even if it passes, there would still likely be details that would need to be hammered out on the House side. But Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves has indicated he'd be open to signing what's being worked on, but also that he's working closely with legislative leaders as this bill continues to develop. Yeah, and we'll talk to see if it changes. Omar Jimenez, thank you. New information just coming into CNN this morning about those four Americans who were kidnapped at gunpoint in Mexico. We'll tell you what we know ahead. Also, new reaction pouring in on Chris Rock's Netflix stand-up special, why our next guest is he deserved to be slapped by Will Smith. Even still... People have a lot to say about Chris Rock's Netflix stand-up special in which he skewered Will Smith for slapping him at the Oscars. I've been hearing from a lot of people, primarily black women, who think that the coverage of the special is missing the mark. Rock's strongest words appear to be directed to or at Jada Pinkett Smith, the target of his Oscars joke last year. 
Rock traces his beef with her all the way back to 2016. That's when, according to Rock, she attempted to get him to quit the Oscars, um, to not host the Oscars because Will Smith wasn't nominated for uh, the movie Concussion. Nobody's picking on this She started this Nobody was picking on her. She said, uh, me, a fucking grown-ass man should quit his job because her husband did get nominated for concussion. And then this gives me a concussion. Part of that was a larger push, though, because black actors weren't being nominated. So, but critics also blasted Rock for making black people the butt of his jokes to appeal to a white audience. And our next guest writes that Rock, quote, deserved to be slapped. So joining us now is a senior writer at The Root, Candace McDuffie. Good morning uh, to you. Why did you think he deserved to be slapped? It's not so much about being slapped as much as it is about accountability, right? He has made Black women specifically the butt of his jokes for years, and he's finally being held accountable. So I feel like this kind of sets the precedence, you know, going forward, hopefully that people will be more careful about how they treat and discuss, you know, Black women. You know, people are going to focus on your words saying, you know, is Candace McDuffie condoning violence saying that, you know, that Will Smith should have slapped Chris Rock? I think, you know, in the literal sense, it seems like a bit much. But honestly, sitting here, you know, calling Jada out of her name, making fun of her hair condition, talking about her alopecia, words can be violent as well. And as we've seen, you know, Black girls and women, we suffer abuse at higher rates in this country. So continuing to humiliate us only perpetuates this. A lot of people laugh, though, when they hear the jokes and they say he's a comedian, he's just being funny, maybe... Um, you're being too sensitive about it? What do you say? I think it speaks to a a larger American pattern um, of using marginalized people as comedic fodder. And then it can also, you know, lead to violence being incited. It can lead to us being not seen as human. Words and comedy have larger consequences as we've seen in recent years. A black woman comedian, as you know, you know Leslie Jones, calling out what she calls, and I quote, hypocrites, who are uh, attacking Chris Rock, she says, for sharing his perspective on on what happened. And and another quote, he is a comedian. This is his way of expressing it. If he's saying he would write a song, because it's painful, it's a painful thing that happened. What What do you say to Leslie Jones? What we saw on that stage wasn't comedy. You know, it was comedy, but it was really pain. He hasn't healed from what's happened. Um, and instead of kind of dealing with those emotions and those feelings, he's just taking it out um, and continues to take his rage and go out on top of him. At the end of his special, he addresses why he didn't retaliate when he um, slapped, when he got slapped. Watch this. And you know what my parents taught me? Don't fight in front of white people. Does that joke bother you? So much. You're telling me that black people can't fight in front of white people, but you can humiliate black people in front of white people. There was recently a clip that resurfaced of him with Jerry Seinfeld and Ricky Gervais and Louis C.K., where he gave Louis C.K. the pass to say the N-word. How is that okay? Right? But we have to act a certain way, but it doesn't apply to him. Candace McDuffie, I'm so glad you could join us this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Seeing this morning continues right now.
the gun. Where are they diverting us? Because wherever it is, there's going to be a bloodbath everywhere. Can you imagine being on that plane? I'm not sure how I would react with that. When I watched that, I was watching the guy sitting next to him, yeah. feeling so sorry for him. Yeah, I don't know. How, what do you think you'd do? I often think about it on a plane. Like, if something broke out, something happened. I would want to get, would get up and be the one to tackle them. Yeah. You never know until you're in the yeah. moment. You yeah. never know what, they're, what they may be armed with or just anything. I mean, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a bizarre and frightening attack on a United flight. A passenger allegedly tried to stab a flight attendant after trying to open the emergency exit door. We're going to show you the chilling video of the attack and what led up to it. Also, four Americans kidnapped at gunpoint in Mexico. What we're hearing from their family. Also, authorities say they believe this is a case of mistaken identity. In addition to that, nearly two dozen suspects are now facing domestic terrorism charges after a violent mob of protesters attacked the future site of a police training facility in Atlanta. CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller is going to join us here on set to break down the charges and the strategy that police are using to prevent more violence. But here is where we begin with yet another terrifying incident on a flight. Since I'm taking over this plane. Oh, my God. Federal investigators say this passenger tried to open the emergency exit door and then tried to stab a flight attendant in the neck with a broken metal spoon. It happened during a United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Boston and CNN obtained this video of the attack. Straight now to CNN's Pete Montine with us. Pete, good morning to you. This is frightening. And this is just one, though, of several very scary incidents in the sky recently. That's right, Don. You know, this is now under investigation by the Department of Justice. Just the second high-profile incident of an unruly passenger on board a commercial airliner in as many weeks. The good news here is the numbers dropped in half between 2021 and 2022, but this has to be one of the most dramatic. In fact, the Department of Justice says the flight crew first became alerted to this when a door alarm went off in the cockpit when this passenger allegedly tried to open the emergency exit. United Airlines Flight 2609 from Los Angeles to Boston. It was a smooth flight for the first five hours on Sunday until... So where's the Homeland Security with the gun? Because I'm waiting for them to point the gun at me so I can show everybody that I won't die when I take every bullet in that clip to wherever in my body they shoot it, and then I will kill every man on this plane. The agitated passenger is identified as Francisco Severo Torres of Massachusetts. The video obtained by CNN was recorded by a passenger. It shows Torres having violent outbursts towards other passengers and flight attendants. Hey, Bianca. I love you, Bianca. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you, Bianca. Four minutes, nervous passengers sat down and listened. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Where's Homeland Security? There should be Homeland Security. Fifteen seconds later, Torres walks out of his seat, pulls what appears to be a makeshift weapon out of his jacket pocket, and said what no airline passenger ever wants to hear. I'm taking over this plane. Oh my god. Dude, I'm telling you right now. While United Airlines says there were no reported injuries, the Justice Department says Torres rushed towards one of the flight attendants in a stabbing motion with a broken metal spoon, hitting the flight attendant on the neck area three times. Torres also told law enforcement that he tried to open the emergency door to jump out of the plane. 
Torres also claimed he was defending himself because he believed the flight crew was trying to kill him. Video shows passengers and crew members tackling and restraining Torres. A passenger told CNN Torres remained restrained for another 30 minutes before the plane landed safely at Boston Logan International Airport, where Torres was arrested. United Airlines says that Torres has been banned from future flights on the carrier. Torres will appear before a judge on Thursday, Don. And Pete, there's also this. Uh, we're learning of a new runway incursion that is under investigation this morning, the sixth recorded this year. What do you know? Yeah, the sixth recorded this year, Don. This one happened at Sarasota Bradenton International Airport on February 16th, but we are just learning about it now. The National Transportation Board says it's investigating when an Air Canada Rouge flight was on the runway as an American Airlines flight was coming into land on the same runway. The NTSB says that American Airlines flight went around, but again, just another string of incidents here that will no doubt come up on Capitol Hill tomorrow when FAA Acting Administrator Billy Nolan is appearing before a Senate committee, Don. Pete Montine, thank you very much at Reagan National Airport. And in our next hour, we're going to speak to a woman who was on that United flight and recorded the video of the attacker. You don't want to miss that. Also this morning, an update on those four kidnapped Americans. Still no word from their families. They were kidnapped in Mexico, and investigators believe potentially a Mexican drug cartel abducted them. And what looks like a case of mistaken identity. Take a look. This video is frightening. It shows people being loaded into a truck one by one in broad daylight by armed men. CNN has confirmed that video matches the incident of the kidnapping. They have not, though. We have not yet independently confirmed if that is the four Americans in the video. This morning, the family members are waiting, hoping for some good news. I felt a little uneasy because I told them I had a dream. You know, I said, so I'm just checking on you. That's what I told them Thursday. And then, like I said, Friday morning, I texted and I didn't get anything. The waiting is the worst part. It, uh, it has its advantages and disadvantages, but however, no news is good news. Okay. That's the way I'm staying with it. No news is good news. They're certainly holding out hope. Let's go to our colleague, Rose Flores. She joins us live in Houston. Rosa, what's the update this morning? You know, Poppy, as you mentioned, we are still trying to confirm that video to see if it actually shows the Americans. But we're learning, and all new this morning, from the aunt of um, uh, one of the Americans that they recognize one of their loved ones in that video. Now, as you mentioned, this video is very graphic. Uh, so just a warning before we show that video. But according to the aunt of um, one of the individuals, Latavia Washington McGee, she says that she recognizes her, her loved one's blonde hair, the clothing that she was wearing on that very day. Now, according to the FBI, the four Americans crossed into Matamoros, Mexico on Friday in a white minivan with North Carolina plates. You see that white minivan in that video. The president of Mexico saying that these Americans were caught in a confrontation between two groups. And you see armed men in that video as well. And we also have photos of this. Now, a U.S. official with knowledge of the investigation says that indeed this is a case of mistaken identity and that the cartels likely uh, mistook these Americans for Haitian smugglers. Now, both law enforcement on the U.S. side and on the Mexican side, they're trying to figure out uh, exactly where these Americans are. They're trying to uh, find them, bring, bring them back. The U.S. State Department keeping a close eye on all the developments. Take a listen. 
we're standing ready to provide all appropriate uh, consular assistance. We do also remind Americans about the existing travel guidance when it comes to this uh, particular part of Mexico. The travel advisory for uh, Tamaulipas State remains at level four. Do not travel. Uh, we encourage Americans to heed that, heed that advice. And Poppy, as you heard there, Matamoros is in the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. And this area has been on the new do not travel list for a while because Americans can and have been victims of crime and kidnapping. I should mention that the FBI has a 50000 dollar reward out there for information that gets these Americans back home. And can we talk about the, those Americans? You mentioned one of the victims in all of this, but tell us what we know about it, all four of them. You know, what we know from their loved ones is that they're very tight friends. They grew up together in South Carolina. And one of the individuals, Latavia Washington McGee, is a mother of six. And mm. her children are between the ages of six and 18. And uh, according to their loved ones, she was the one that was headed to Mexico for this medical procedure that she never arrived for. She never arrived for uh, that appointment. Uh, I should mention the names of her friends. Uh, they are Shahid Woodward, Zintel Brown, and also their friend Eric. Now, uh, family members say that this would, would have been the second procedure, Poppy, mm -hmm. that Washington McGee received in Mexico. Um, so that tells maybe some of the familiarity. Um, unclear what part of Mexico she had her first procedure. Um, uh, but again, these are very close friends. They were together and they were really just hoping to go to Mexico for a quick medical procedure and, and come back to the United States. And terrifying and those children waiting, uh, wondering where their mother is. Thank you, Rosa Flores, for the reporting from Houston. Next hour, we're going to take you to the hometown of the abducted Americans. We'll give you more of an update then as well. Caitlin. Also this morning, we're tracking in Georgia, where at least 23 people are now facing domestic terrorism charges after being arrested amid violent clashes with police officers at the construction site for a proposed new police training center in Atlanta. Opponents have derisively called the facility Cop City. They say it would increase militarization, uh, militarized policing and harm the environment. Those are the climate protesters as well. Atlanta police say that they are not protesting, but instead engaging in criminal activity. CNN's Nick Valencia is live. Nick, you're like actually at the facility. I can see the debris behind you. Tell us what you're seeing there on the ground. Yeah, good morning, Caitlin. We're on the edge of this forest where countless numbers of activists have made their home. They're camping out here in opposition to this proposed police fire and training facility. You can see behind me some of the items left behind. Uh, they've even got Porter Johns here, a, a left behind tent. It's become a, a campsite and a sort of staging area where we're at. They even have a, a free store with clothes where they exchange goods here. And earlier this morning, I spoke to two of the activists who say that they're living inside this forest right now because they don't want what they call Cop City built. They see it as a, para to, uh, a paramilitary facility, a, a step towards further militarizing the police uh, in this country. And it is a robust coalition of activists that are here, not just those that are against this facility, but also those that don't want the environment harmed here by this facility. But it's become much bigger than this so-called cop city. It has become, in a sense, ground zero for activists to come in from across the country to confront police, or at the very least, at least air their grievances against police. And it's what we saw here happen on Sunday. 35 people 
people taken into custody. Of those, 23 have been charged with domestic terrorism, and it's similar to the other charges that we've seen from individuals who have confronted police at this site. Things have only gotten more tense since an, a climate activist was shot and killed by police, Manuel Teran. Uh, Georgia State Police say that Teran opened fire on them first, and they returned fire, killing him. What is clear in the bottom line here is that thing is, uh, things have only gotten more tense. This week has been promoted by protesters as being a week of action and protests with the fate of this proposed police and fire training facility dubbed Cop City by its opponents hanging in the balance. Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the question, of course, Nick, is how long that these are going to go on, what these protests could look like, given how violent we've seen right. them get. Uh, Nick, stand by. We're going to keep right. Nick as we want to bring in now CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, good morning to you. Thank you so much. So why don't we pick up where the last thing that Nick talked about, 35 people taken into custody, custody at least 23 people facing domestic terrorism charges. How serious is this? Well, this has, as Nick said, been going on for a while. It involves uh, a shooting between police and a protester who opened fire on a state police officer who was seriously wounded. The protester was killed. We saw a second wave of that in downtown Atlanta, not at the construction site where they burned police cars, broke bank windows, um, attacked businesses. So you've got a couple of interesting dynamics here, which is you've got groups of local protesters who have a position on this training ground and whether it's going to infect the environment um, and destroy a wooded area. But then you have the out-of-town group that's come in. And out of the 23 people charged yesterday, two are from the state of Georgia. The rest are what police refer to as professional out-of-town agitators who have inserted themselves into this to create a flashpoint. Or what the protesters would say um, are, you know, supporters from out of town who are experienced in taking on authority and dealing with the police. Um, however you want to look at that, you see it starts with a protest march, which is legal and, and you know, under police escort and going by the site. Then it turns into the launching of fireworks at the police, shooting of fireworks at police, Molotov cocktails, burning of a police ATV. Um, and that is that group of out-of-towners who, they call these black block tactics, where you change out of whatever you're wearing into your all-black clothes, uh, makes it harder for police to describe who did what, you know, based on the clothing description. You move out of the crowd, you do what they call your direct action, and then disappear back into the crowd. So it's been very dicey. Can we turn to what we just talked about with, with Rosa? There's four Americans, going, one going for a medical procedure right over the border in Mexico. The, the authorities think this is a case of mistaken identity, and they got caught in the crosshairs of these drug cartels. How do you get them back? Well, that's a complicated situation because... In a normal situation, you get them back through, and I used to run kidnap investigations yeah. for the LAPD. There are a set, set of procedures there. When you're operating in an impermissive environment in Matamoros, where there is as much or more control of the streets and what happens by a drug cartel, the Gulf cartel, uh, than there is by authorities, it gets very complicated because you don't really own the ground. So the FBI, uh, the DEA, uh, the U.S. Marshals, they all work in Mexico with the U.S. Embassy. They have deep relationships, trusted relationships with Mexican partners. And their job, since the American authorities have no 
legal authority on the ground is to help develop intelligence, informants, information that can result in one of two things, either adding communications or pressure that causes the cartel to turn these people over, leave them somewhere safe. Um, some of them appear to be wounded uh, or to develop information on a location. And then you have to do a dynamic rescue operation, which is inherently dangerous. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday about this and they were saying, well, the State Department says don't travel there. It's a level four, do not travel. It's incredibly dangerous. It's on a level with Syria, basically. But a lot of people do do this because medical treatments are a lot less expensive there than they are in the United States. They can pay $5,000 there as opposed to $10,000, for example. It's not all that uncommon, is it? No. And I mean, you know, people make this calculated risk, which is, well, they mean don't travel deep into the state. You know, I'm just going across the border from Brownsville into Matamoros. So you know, close. I've, I've yeah. seen the doctor on, you know, Facebook. Uh, my friends have been down and they've or had I've been there before, like this, like this woman. This would have been her second trip yeah. to this medical facility. And she's got her friends, you know, safety in numbers. I've got three guys with illusion. me. Um, but this is a really bad example of how really dangerous yeah. it is. And this is what she was involved in, probably a $8,000 procedure in the United States, which is, you know, a $6,000 or $5,000 procedure there. That's a lot of risk for not that much money. John Miller. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. So people in parts of hard-hit Southern California have been rushing, trying to dig out as yet another round of snow is on the way. The total snowfall for the season there stands at more than 48 feet. This is in California. All right. That is Central Sierra Snow Lab, who says that is the total amount. And Snowden residents are growing more worried about having enough food and supplies. I'm feeling frustrated and I feel like I'm in prison. It's scary, it's frustrating, and it's frightening. It's hard to make stuff. I'm just eating what there is, you know, so it's getting uncomfortable. And then they say, like, go get supplies. It's not an easy thing to do. Our Stephanie Elam is live in Crestline, California with more. They're, I mean, they're just talking about how hard it is to get on and off the mountain. Uh, yeah, and the good news here, Poppy, is that at least the roads are open. This is the news that I'm standing here in the middle of the road here on Crestline because they've now opened it up just to residents so that they can come and go because that's been part of the difficulty. Some people were afraid if they left the mountain, they wouldn't be able to get back up here. You see how high that snow is here behind me. Well, the other good news is well, it wasn't good for them yesterday. There was a rainstorm that came through and it melted some of the snow that is out here. Uh, so the snow berms on the side are lower, but there's still a ton of snow. And there is still a lot of the fact that you had so much snow on top of some of these buildings here that you had roofs collapsing. People are concerned about making sure that their homes are gonna be okay. We see people with snow blowers on top of their roofs of some of these businesses trying to make sure that they get the snow off to make sure no, no more of these roofs collapse. People are hiking in from the other regions. While the county says that 60% of the roads are open now, a lot of those side roads are not open. And so because of that, people are trying to make their way down here and sometimes by foot to get down to the middle of town where they could go and pick up food later in the day. We've seen some snow plows already out here and operating, but overall, we are looking at still some difficult times, but at least they can get in and out of here now. Um, and in Northern California, we know that another storm system is heading that way as well. 
We know in Madera County, there have been homes that had roofs collapsed because of snow. Uh, Placer County also calling for a state of emergency because of more snow coming into the area. So all in all, it's still very much the heart of winter here, even though we are now into March, Poppy. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I remember when you were literally uncovering that car in the snowbank for us last week that was totally hidden. Stephanie Elam, thank you. It's just remarkable to watch. Also this morning, we are tracking in Washington where a revised crime bill for Washington, D.C. has split Democrats, which side President Biden is siding with, how members of his party are reacting to how the White House has handled this. See a picture of Washington there that comes as there is some drama underway in the nation's capital as the D.C. Council is now withdrawing a sweeping rewrite of the Capitol's criminal code from consideration. That comes just before the Senate was scheduled to vote on it on Wednesday to overturn the measure. That move is still going to happen. You are still going to see the Senate vote on that. That comes after the White House announced that President Biden would not veto the Republican-led measure This is something that took years that D.C. City Council members worked on to revise the criminal code there. But now they are going to move ahead with this. This has upset some Democrats in the House after they voted on it and voted against overturning it. And now with the White House saying they will not veto it, some Democrats say it has put them in a difficult position because, of course, now they are the ones who voted against it with the White House now changing it. A D.C. City Council member was critical of this effort, saying that she doesn't even think Republicans who voiced their criticism, criticisms about it even read the bill. And they're just using this bill to spread misleading and disingenuous soft on crime talking points. House Speaker McCarthy was on CNN this morning saying that the council wants to decriminalize carjacking. That's completely false. Under this bill, carjacking in D.C. carries a sentence of up to 24 years, and that doesn't include the enhancements that can come with it. In the speaker's home state of California, carjacking is only punishable by nine years. And frankly, the speaker's ignorance on this issue is exactly why Congress shouldn't be making decisions for the District of Columbia. CNN's MJ Lee is joining us live from the White House. MJ, it's kind of hard to understate the the frustration that we've seen from a lot of House Democrats, leading House Democrats over the way that the White House has handled this. Yeah, Caitlin, you know, we have really seen a falling of political dominoes ever since last week when the president said that he uh, wouldn't veto this bill if Congress were to pass it. Uh, As you said, House Democrats were blindsided and felt really furious at the White House for not making it clear sooner that this is what the president's position would be. There were, of course, uh, Democratic progressives who said his position just simply does not line up uh, with his stated support for D.C. statehood. Uh, And then, as you said, yesterday we saw this whole debacle with the D.C. Council uh, trying to take this out of congressional review because they knew that the U.S. Senate was about uh, to kill this bill. Look, I think in the big picture, we are seeing very much a big reminder of how big of an issue and a vulnerability Democrats see as crime being. You know, Republicans have consistently tried to go after Democrats as being soft on crime in the same way that they have said Democrats are soft on the border. Uh, And this D.C. crime bill saga has really sort of capped 
captured how politically fraught this issue is going to be and how Democrats sort of find themselves in a bind in some ways, including President Biden. You know, he wants to make sure that he is presenting himself as a leader of the party on not being soft on crime. But on this issue, uh, it was kind of a difficult balancing act. And in the end, uh, even though the White House didn't end up giving a full explanation or a clear explanation, they clearly felt like this was a route that he had to take. But no question about it, heading into 2024, this is going to be a huge political issue that Republicans continue to attack Democrats on. Yeah, Democrats just seem to wish they knew about it beforehand. Also, MJ, we know the president is going to release his budget blueprint on Thursday. He's now penned an op-ed this morning talking about Medicare, which obviously has been one of their main contention points with Republicans. What's he saying in this op-ed? Yeah, Caitlin, there is just so much leading up to Thursday when President Biden is going to be releasing his own budget. Uh, this is sort of going to be seen as the opening salvo of his uh, negotiations with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as they try to figure out how to raise the debt ceiling uh, later this year. Uh, for the president, he has made clear that a big part of his messaging is going to be about strengthening Medicare. Uh, and this is a part of what he said in this new New York Times op-ed this morning. He said, if the MAGA Republican Republicans get their way, seniors will pay higher out-of-pocket costs on prescription drugs and insulin. The deficit will be bigger and Medicare will be weaker. The only winner under their plan will be Big Pharma. Now, I should note, of course, Kevin McCarthy has said that Social Security and Medicare, those are two things that Republicans uh, do not plan on touching, uh, that we will see the details of this budget come Thursday. But it is already pretty clear what the White House's messaging is going to be and what the Democrats' messaging is going to be, Caitlin. Yeah, we'll see what House Republicans say. MJ Lee, thank you. This morning, China's new foreign minister issuing a stern rebuke of U.S. policies as tensions between the world's two largest economies continue to soar. He says conflict and confrontation are inevitable if Washington does not change course and warned there could be catastrophic consequences. He also defended Beijing's close partnership with Moscow. Let's bring in now CNN Selena Wang live for us in Beijing. Good morning to you. So what what are what else are you hearing from the new foreign minister? Hi, Don. Well, actually, this was Qing Gong's first press conference as China's foreign minister. Up until recently, he was China's ambassador to the U.S., and he's got this reputation for being a careful and accomplished diplomat. So it is significant that he struck this more combative tone in his first appearance in this rule. As you said, he warned of catastrophic consequences and inevitable conflict if the U.S. does not change its approach to China. We also heard him emphasize this argument that Beijing has been making for a long time, this argument that the U.S., is trying to contain and suppress its rise. He lashed out at the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific strategy, accusing the U.S. of plotting an Asia-Pacific version of NATO. He also defended China's partnership with Russia as imperative and said China has not supplied weapons to Russia or Ukraine. He also accused the U.S. of creating a crisis over Taiwan. This was clearly a fiery press conference, and it really sets the tone for China's foreign policy for not just this coming year, but potentially years to come. It shows that there really isn't going to be an off-ramp to U.S.-China tensions anytime soon. And I want to point out, Don, that this 
press conference happened during China's biggest annual legislative session. This is a rare opportunity for media to actually attend. I just came back from a session myself. But in order to attend any singular session, which we have to get approval to, by the way, Don, and we don't get approval to all of them, I actually had to enter the quarantine hotel last night, get a PCR test and get bussed over to the venue, then bussed back to the quarantine hotel. So is it really because of COVID rules or an excuse to control press access, Don? Interesting. Selena Wang, thank you. Fascinating. Ahead, we're going to tell you how an animal tranquilizer is changing the drug drug epidemic across the country. Our Ellie Reeve went to Philadelphia. She got a firsthand look at the effects of what is being called trank. What she saw that's next. Welcome back. We don't have to tell you. You know this. It's everywhere. The fentanyl crisis in America is destroying communities everywhere. But in the city of Philadelphia, the solution may be even more dire. A powerful animal sedative called xylazine, known as Trank, has quickly found its way into the vast majority of the city's drug supply. Watch this. I heard that, like, people don't really want the trank, but it, they can't avoid it now because it's in everything. Is that true? Yeah, just like Betty's just about in everything. Trank is almost in everything, you know. In Philadelphia, it took a couple of years to dominate the supply. We now are at 91%. And we are seeing in other major cities where xylazine was not present that it is dominating the supply in less than six months. And tell me what you think about this term zombie drug. It's stigmatizing. Don't say it. Why would you say that about my friends? Why would you say that about a human? It's already hard enough trying to get people to care about us. Joining us now is CNN correspondent Ellie Reeve. That is her reporting. She went to Philadelphia for this. She'll be reporting in full on it tonight before CNN's town hall on fentanyl addiction. So people can see her full report on AC360 tonight. What, what is this and what is it doing to these communities? Well, it's a really powerful sedative. So it's different than an opioid. And one of the problems is Narcan, which can help people overcome an overdose, works on the fentanyl if someone has taken a combination of these two drugs, but it doesn't work on the xylazine. So people have started to carry oxygen to rescue people who aren't breathing. Um, It's, you know, talking to the people out there, I was afraid they wouldn't want to talk to me. But they did. They wanted other people outside to know what was happening to them. And multiple people said to me things like, I'm human, you know, I'm a person. Like, I have, I'm a mother, I'm, I have children. Like, I'm a real person. And it's mixed in with some of the opioids that they're taking? That's what it, it sounded like. Yeah, because fentanyl doesn't last as long as heroin. Um, the idea is that drug dealers put xylazine in to give it legs, to make it last longer. But it didn't quite work the way people anticipated, and so people start going into withdrawal from xylazine within just a few hours. I've been just obsessed watching the, these videos and the coverage around the country because Philadelphia, I'm a former Philadelphian, Philadelphia's on the front lines, but it is ha- it's happening in Boston, it's happening in the Pacific Northwest, it's happening all over the country with this xylazine or trank, um, as they call it. And it basically, it's every, dif- diff- it's every different demographic. It's not just one demographic, it's not just poor people, it is every different demographic of people who get sadly hooked on drugs. 
Um, and it turns people into zombies. They stand there on the street and they can't move. And you can go right in front of their face and they can't move. So, but what is, what is the solution? What are people doing in order to fix this? That's the point. I don't know yeah. what the fix is because it is awful. It's an awful, awful epidemic that's making its way all across the country. So a lot of people I talked to got there because they were prescribed pain pills for cancer, carpal tunnel syndrome, and that led to heroin, which fentanyl, and then xylazine. Um, another thing that experts told us is that mental health care is a big part of this, that mm. a lot of people are trying to drown out their thoughts about their trauma. I mean, people who were addicted there told us that same thing, that Trank meant that, you know, you don't have to think, you don't have to see, you don't have to know. One person said, you know, if I could sleep all day, I would take it. And that woman was 66 years old. And the woman you spoke to there at the end is really notable, Sarah. She runs what is known as Savage Sisters. And essentially, she's a former heroin addict. She was also once homeless. So she can empathize with them and knows kind of what they're going through in a way that is really remarkable. Yeah. So the people we spoke to said they really like going to this place because she understands them. She makes them feel like they care about them. And she also knows what they need. Right. So people might donate canned foods to people without homes. Well, where are they going to cook that? Or shampoo. Where are they going to wash their hair? They don't have showers. Right. So she understands how to take care of their needs, which is showers, clean clothes, nurses to take care of their wounds. We didn't talk about the other big part of this is it also causes a flesh-eating disease. I mean, it literally eats away at flesh. And many of the people, because they're addicted, they're on the streets and they can't get medical care, right? Yeah, and doctors aren't sure why. It causes these large um, wounds on the skin. They understand why they won't heal, because it's a vasoconstrictor, right? So the, the blood's not going to these wounds. But they don't know why they appear in the first place. But they become necrotic, meaning the flesh is dying. There can even be maggots in there. It, it, it's really rough. It's really rough. And um, the doctor said, like, the nurses who take care of people who come to the hospital say... Like, there's some secondary trauma there from seeing so many people who are in such a difficult situation. Allie, we can't wait to see the full reporting tonight again on AC360 and then ahead of our hour-long town hall, CNN's town hall tonight uh, on fentanyl. Anderson Cooper will be joined by the head of the DEA and Milgram. That's tonight. So we're just hours away from history being made on Capitol Hill. The first black woman to represent Virginia in Congress will be sworn in. But first... She's going to be with us live right here on CNN this morning. We're going to speak with Congresswoman-elect Jennifer McClellan. That is next. And there are moments when I realize that I'm fighting the same fights as my parents, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents. But you know what keeps me going? I fight those fights so that they don't have to. So that my children and your children don't have to. Oh, in just a couple of hours, we will witness history. Jennifer McClellan will be sworn in as the Virginia's first black congresswoman. McClellan won a special election last month for the vacant 4th Congressional District after Congressman Donald McEachin died of complications from cancer soon after he was reelected in November in the midterm elections. So Congresswoman-elect from Virginia, Jennifer McClellan, joins us now. Good morning. It looks good on you, I have to tell you. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. I'm very excited. How are you doing? This is a milestone. How does it feel? It 
You know, I have to pinch myself uh, every now and then to, to remind myself it's real. Um, it's not something I ever thought would happen, but I am so thrilled. <laughs> you are, let's just be real. It's not, um, it hasn't been that long since we had poll taxes, right? And, and considering our history of slavery so far, it's not that far in the rearview mirror. You are the great, great grandchild of slaves. You are a working mom. You're an African-American woman. How do your experiences shape the the perspectives that you're going to bring to the table of the people's house? Well, you know, being a black woman shapes everything uh, that I know the, you know, I will bring the stories my parents told me of their lives growing up during the depression under Jim Crow. I'm the daughter, granddaughter, great granddaughter, niece of domestic workers. So I understand the importance of that work and how domestic workers have been denied rights that many of us take for granted. Um, my mom was the first member of her family to go to high school, let alone college, because in her town, the only school that taught black children was the Catholic church and it only went to eighth grade. So it tells me the importance of education. So everything is shaped by my life experiences and those stories. Yeah, uh, So many people can relate to that. You're gonna be sworn in, it's amazing, 58 years exactly 58 years after Bloody Sunday uh, in Selma, you will be sworn in on your father's old Bible where you found a copy of your father's poll tax that he uh, paid to vote in the 1940s. And yet, voters' rights still remain under assault today. How do you plan the fight for voting rights and the changes uh, in a divided Congress? Because you know we're very divided right now. I know, but I learned in the General Assembly here in Virginia, I was in the minority for 14 years, and I learned just be persistent. And that's how I was able to make Virginia the first state in the South to pass its own Voting Rights Act. Again, telling those stories of my dad's poll tax, my great-grandfather's literacy test. And I'll keep telling those stories, and I'll keep fighting that fight in Congress until we succeed. Yeah. I was surprised when I say it's not that far behind. I was telling you in the commercial break about um, my very own story of, of reading as a child with my grandmother and her telling me about poll tax and getting tested and, you know, the jelly beans in the jar and that that sort of thing. Can mm -hmm. you relate to Americans how, you know, people think that this fight is over? And this was just a generation ago. It wasn't that far. wasn't that long ago. It, it wasn't that long ago. My own my own father paid poll taxes and his father paid poll taxes. My mom didn't vote until after 1965. Um, and, and when I think about, you know, my great grandfather telling his story about having to not only take a literacy test, but find three white men to vouch for him to be able to register to vote, you know, that's not that long ago. Um, and, and people need to remember that even when we have success, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there's always a backlash and we have to work constantly to protect voting rights in our democracy. Yeah. I, I've got to ask you about this because while in the Senate, you championed abortion rights, most recently introducing an amendment to the Virginia Constitution that if adopted would guarantee a woman's right to have an abortion. How, how are you gonna continue this fight for abortion rights when you're in Congress? I mean, again, the decisions, healthcare decisions, including uh, abortion care, should be between patients and their providers. And again, I will tell the stories of people who have uh, had to have abortions and how restrictions and bans impact uh, their health. Um, and 
That's how I was able to make Virginia the first state in the South to proactively expand access to abortion. And again, it took me a decade to do that. Uh, hopefully it won't take that long in Congress. But again, you got to be persistent. Congresswoman, thank you for what you do. Thank you for appearing. Congratulations to you. And I do have to say again, it looks good on you. <laughs> thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. All right, also this morning, there is a potential game changer when it comes to detecting breast cancer. How artificial intelligence could actually spot signs that your doctor might miss. We're going to discuss that and the concerns that are being raised about this new technology with the medical director of the Louder Breast Center, Dr. Larry Norton. That's next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. So next time you go for a mammogram, artificial intelligence, AI, could help double-check your radiologist's work. The new technology could be a potential advancement in breast cancer screening and detection, picking up signs maybe a doctor might miss. The New York Times has an interesting piece about the impacts of AI in Hungary, where they're using this in five hospitals and clinics. One of the doctors there says that AI spotted a tiny tumor that that doctor admits she missed. What does this really mean, right? We don't want to blow it out of proportion. We want to get an honest analysis of what this means. So joining us to do that is the medical director of the Lauder Breast Center at Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dr. Larry Norton. Doctor, thank you very, very much. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you. I sent this to our team over the weekend because I was fascinated by it. I think we all have victims of cancer in our families and people we love. Can you explain how this AI works? Well, AI is, 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 is a tool that machines use uh, for uh, looking at images and coming up with uh, comparing those images to images that have already been recorded in the machine for being able to identify uh, you know, abnormalities. Uh, and it's used very widely in many, many areas of, of science and, 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 uh, and business and many other things. So here the application is this AI technology to look at mammograms and identify areas that a human radiologist may want to look at more carefully. Okay. It's called computer assisted detection. It's actually been around since the, uh, the late 1990s, but the technology is always improving. It's getting better. It's always getting better. Can, I want your read on this uh, image. Here are some side-by-side images of uh, what MIT did. They used artificial intelligence to predict breast cancer. On the left side of your screen, you see an area in a woman's breast identified as high risk. Four years later, doctor, that is cancer developed, right? And the point is a doctor, human eyes might miss that. Well, there's, there's lots of abnormalities that you, that, you, that, you, uh, that you see. They're not really abnormalities. They're changes that are not really cancer. And you can't call everything cancer because then anybody going for mammogram is going to need a biopsy. And, you know, you, that's, yeah. that's not very practical. What this work at MIT and the Massachusetts General Hospital, and we're collaborating with them at Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, does is uh, it identifies risk. It can tell a woman that you're at high risk for developing breast cancer before you develop a breast cancer. See, one of the things that humans can do that machines can't do is order special tests, things like contrast-enhanced mammograms and, and, right. and, and MRIs uh, and other specialized tests that, that can be used. The other thing that humans can do that machines can't do is look at previous mammograms and see if there's any changes. And so, and so, better than a human eye can compare two images. It, it, we've got to think of AI as a tool for getting, uh, for helping the radiologist look at the images better. But it's, it's not a standalone test. In other words, it's not going to replace a radiologist. So, what do I do, or anyone watching? What do they do if they get this? They're told they're at higher risk for breast cancer. We obviously all think about that gene, where some right. people get elective 
mastectomies to prevent against right. BRCA1 potential. and BRCA2, yeah. So what it, would well, this tell someone to do? How do you act on that? Do you just get more mammograms? See, it's, it's medicine. You have to make individual judgments about individual people. And, and often we do other tests, uh, such as contrast-enhanced mammograms, MRIs, other tests. Uh, people sometimes should go for testing to see if they're carrying an abnormal gene to see if they're at high risk. Uh, and, and all those things become a very important part of the consultation. So you can't give a blanket recommendation to everybody. Yep. It has to be individualized. You also have a warning for people. Um, so, for example, I just called to make right. my mammogram appointment for right. this summer. I do it every June. You have a warning for people not to walk in to get their mammogram and say something, right? Well, yeah, I think that some people can say, listen, I'm only going to get a mammogram in a place that's using AI to help the radiologist. It's not standard of care. Uh, it's continually improving. We're using it. We're studying it. We're trying to get better at it. Uh, but but uh, indeed, a skillful radiologist is still your best protection. And the, the biggest protection is make sure you get your imaging. Uh, about half of people who should be getting annual mammography are not getting it right now, which is really an awful thing. And we had a big slowdown because of the pandemic, too. So the most important thing is get a mammogram. That's number one. And also go to a good radiologist. Anyone over 40 is the advice now? Right now, the advice is annual starting at age 40. Okay. Doctor, right. thank you very, very much. Thank Dr. you very Larry much. Norton, thank we you. appreciate it. CNN This Morning continues right now. It is the moment that we have not stopped talking about all, all morning. morning here. That terrifying scene playing out on a United Airlines flight. All of it caught on camera is a passenger is now accused of trying to stab a flight attendant and open the emergency exit door. In a moment, we're actually going to speak with the witness who watched it all unfold. Can't wait to hear from her. My goodness. So plus, four Americans kidnapped at gunpoint in one of Mexico's most violent and dangerous cities. A desperate search to find them is underway. What we just learned about why they were there. Plus this. They were peaceful, they were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. That is Tucker Carlson trying to rewrite the history of January 6th with surveillance video provided to him by the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, provided to him and only him. Former January 6th committee member Adam Kinzinger is here to weigh in. But here's where we begin. We begin with the flight attendant attacked by an unruly passenger. Federal investigators say this man tried to open the emergency exit door during a flight from Los Angeles to Boston and then tried to stab a flight attendant in the neck with a broken metal spoon. Other passengers tackled him to the ground and he was zip tied until the plane landed. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now with more on this. Pete, good morning to you. Uh, he told investigators he wanted to jump out of the plane. Yeah, good morning, John. You know, this is the second high-profile incident of an unruly passenger we have seen in, man, in as many weeks. Department of Justice now looking into this. You know, what's really interesting here is that the number of unruly passengers went down by half over last year. But this is, has to be one of the most dramatic incidents we have seen recently. The flight crew first became alerted to this when this passenger tried to open the emergency exit door and they got an alarm in the cockpit. Here is the incredible video. 
United Airlines Flight 2609 from Los Angeles to Boston. It was a smooth flight for the first five hours on Sunday until... So where's the Homeland Security with the gun? Because I'm waiting for them to point the gun at me so I can show everybody that I won't die when I take every bullet in that clip to wherever in my body they shoot it, and then I will kill every man on this plane. The agitated passenger is identified as Francisco Severo Torres of Massachusetts. The video obtained by CNN was recorded by a passenger. It shows Torres having violent outbursts towards other passengers and flight attendants. Hey, Bianca. I love you, Bianca. I'm coming for you. Four minutes, nervous passengers sat down and listened. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Where's Homeland Security? There should be Homeland Security. Where are they diverting us? Because wherever it is, there's got to be a bloodbath everywhere. Fifteen seconds later, Torres walks out of his seat, pulls what appears to be a makeshift weapon out of his jacket pocket, and said what no airline passenger ever wants to hear. So I'm taking over this plane. Oh, my God. Dude, I'm telling uh -oh. you right now. Oh, no. I'm telling you right now. While United Airlines says there were no reported injuries, the Justice Department says Torres rushed towards one of the flight attendants in a stabbing motion with a broken metal spoon, hitting the flight attendant on the neck area three times. Torres also told law enforcement that he tried to open the emergency door to jump out of the plane. Torres also claimed he was defending himself because he believed the flight crew was trying to kill him. Video shows passengers and crew members tackling and restraining Torres. A passenger told CNN Torres remained restrained for another 30 minutes before the plane landed safely at Boston Logan International Airport, where Torres was arrested. United Airlines says Torres has been banned from future flights on the carrier. He is detained right now pending a hearing before a judge on Thursday. John. So, Pete, you have this, but we're also learning of a new runway incursion that is under investigation this morning, the sixth recorded this year. What do you know? Well, this we're just learning about. It happened on February 16th, according to the NTSB, but it's investigating this incident now as these planes were both on the runway near the same time. Uh, American Airlines flight cleared to land on the runway at Sarasota Bradenton International Airport as an Air Canada Rouge flight was taking off. We know the NTSB is investigating this. No doubt it will come up tomorrow during a Senate hearing with the acting administrator of the FAA. Another safety incident on America's runways done. All right, Pete Montine, thank you. And joining us now is Lisa Olson, who was the passenger on that Los Angeles to Boston flight. She actually captured the video that we have been showing you this morning. And Lisa, first off, oh my goodness, and we are so glad that you're okay, because obviously this could have gone terribly, and we're grateful that you can join us this morning. What was it even like to be on this flight? The first, um, the first five hours of the flight was uneventful, um, quiet, normal flight. I was on with my husband and my daughter. Um, and, you know, about 30 minutes before we were landing, I heard, you know, a commotion. He was getting louder. Um, he was about two rows diagonally in back of me. And he just started rambling about, um, you know, his father's Dracula, the Nazis, um, just a lot of rambling. Um, and he was just getting louder and louder. A couple of passengers tried to talk to him to calm him down. It was only making him more agitated. Um, 
a woman tried to approach him and say that, um, you know, he was scaring the passengers, he didn't care, he was getting louder. And then a a very large, like, built guy started walking from the back of the plane up to him. And when he saw that, he kind of, you know, jumped out of his seat and um, got in the aisle and, you know, started to, you know, like, fight him um, or attempt to kind of pretend to fight him. I didn't see a a weapon in his hand at that point, but he was, my, my husband was in the aisle seat. So he was standing, like, right next to my husband. I didn't see the a spoon um, shank uh, um, until I saw the video after after that. Um, and then he turned and ran towards the front of the plane. The United crew um, was amazing. They blocked the first class entrance, which led to the cockpit. Uh, the flight attendants were there. Um, many men from the plane um, jumped up, uh, followed him, um, tackled him to the ground, and there were probably about four to six of them that sat on top of him to restrain him. Uh, the flight crew, you know, immediately had zip ties to zip tie his feet and his arms. Um, he was still screaming. Um, and he somehow escaped from the zip ties. Uh, they put new ones on him. And as the men were getting tired from restraining him, they kind of swapped out. And, you know, the ones that were tired would come back to sit down people were thanking them um and very appreciative that you know they jumped into action so quickly yeah he actually escaped from the zip ties at one point he did i think he was he was so out of control um i don't know if they didn't you know get him on tight enough um i don't know exactly what happened if he busted out of them or if he just you know wiggled out of them um but he was still very combative for the beginning part so it it may have been that and but you, people at that point, once we knew that there were only, you know, one additional set of zip ties left, people were sending up their belts um, to help wow. restrain him. That it's remarkable to see how quickly all of your fellow passengers mm-hmm. responded. The fact that you were able to have the presence of mind to record this when you were sitting so close to him is remarkable. I can't believe there's just one pair of zip ties left. Did you notice anything beforehand, you know, when he was boarding the plane or in those several? That's a really long flight. Had you noticed any weird behavior from this man before then? I did not. And I questioned myself on that, but he was in back of me. So I didn't see him board. Um, He was sitting in the exit row in the middle, um, but he was two rows in back of me on the opposite side. So he was kind of diagonally in back of me. I didn't didn't notice him until I heard him. Yeah. And he, he attacked a flight attendant. Do you know how the flight attendant was doing? You know, what was it like getting off the plane after you, you safely landed? So when he um, stormed to the front and he was on the ground, um, he was, you know, the, the last, it was probably 30 minutes that they had him down there. Um, you know, towards the end, probably five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, he was quiet. Um, he was screaming a lot before that. And as soon as the plane landed, um, I think the flight attendant was, you know, okay. I don't think it was a, you know, a deep puncture wound. Um, but he was right in front of the door when they had him on the ground. Uh, the police, the Massachusetts State Police came on board, um, cuffed him, took him off the plane. Um, you know, the EMTs came in and attended to the flight attendant. Um, and then they, they came back and questioned, um, you know, some of the passengers. Lisa, this is a 
pretty jarring experience. I mean, we've been talking so much about close calls with flight takeoffs and turbulence and all of these things that have been happening in the skies, you know, this incident happening now as well. Does it make you hesitant to fly or scared to fly at all? Ironically, no. Um, my husband actually jumped on another flight yesterday morning and left. Um, I had my 17-year-old daughter with me. She was very upset during the whole time. She was crying. She thought that we were going to crash. Um, but for whatever reason, the United crew, um, plus all the passengers being able to act so quickly just was very comforting. Um, I had confidence, complete confidence that they had everything under control and I didn't feel, um, you know, unsafe or in danger, um, during that, that time period. Um, a lot came out after the fact, I think that I assumed that when he started yelling because he was quiet for the first five hours that I thought maybe it was drugs or something happened where it just he, it just set him off. I didn't realize that he was kind of planning this from the beginning. He was in the bathroom from a, for a long time um, before that with his backpack. Um, I heard that once the police officers were questioning the people in back of him because there was a woman back there that noticed that um, you know he did take his backpack into the bathroom. He was there for a long period of time, which is odd. Um, and the officers. Um, grabbed his backpack. Then um, the other odd thing that I kind of noticed was I, I was expecting it to be kind of messy, and it was a very neat black backpack. It had hand sanitizer in the side pocket. It was um, just the whole situation was a little surreal. It, the entire situation is surreal. Lisa, we're, we're grateful that you recorded mm -hmm. this so we could actually see it and that you and your fellow passengers were so quick to respond to this. Thank you for, for coming on and for, for sharing that with us. We're so glad that everything's okay. Please tell your husband and your daughter that, that we're thinking about them as well. Thank you. It's just amazing to hear it. She said people were passing up belts and stuff when they were running out of zip ties. That he got out of them. Him. And, and they were running out of zip ties. We always say, you know, oh, if I was in that situation, I'd do this or I'd do that. But you don't know. That's what I was trying, saying you last hour. Know. You hope that your reaction would be bravery you don't know. And then she said she had her daughter was terrified. My initial reaction would be to act first. I would probably, honestly, like try to hit him or something yeah, or throw him off, right, by saying something and just getting him out of what he's doing. But Perfect. you don't know. You don't know if you're, until you're in that situation. Which then it makes me, I'm getting on a flight, as you guys know, right after the show. Yeah. And it makes, yes, all of this stuff going on, like you asked her, makes me uneasy. You'll be all right. Thank you. Right. I'll see you back here tomorrow morning. <laughs> Bring your zip ties. Right. Yeah, but they did. They acted properly. And yeah. I'm, we're glad everybody's okay. Yeah, we certainly are. Okay, happening right now, a search is underway in Mexico for four Americans who have been kidnapped there at gunpoint. By the way, in broad daylight, investigators believe a Mexican cartel mistook them for Haitian drug smugglers. CNN is also now learning their identities from family members who say Latavia Washington McGee, uh, Shahid Woodard, Zindel Brown and their friend Eric were all four traveling together so that one of them could undergo a medical procedure. Our Diane Gallagher is live in Lake City, South Carolina. That's home to one of the kidnapped Americans. What can you tell us this morning? You know, Poppy, this is a tight 
group of friends. At least three of the four grew up here in the Lake City, South Carolina area. Uh, they were traveling down to Mexico, we're told. So one of the friends, Latavia McGee, they call her Tay, could have that medical procedure. But according to McGee's mother, she never showed up for her doctor's appointment on Friday. And then on Sunday, she says the FBI told her that her daughter had been kidnapped and that she was in danger. Now, I do want to show you some video. It might be hard to watch. CNN has not independently confirmed the individuals in the video are, in fact, those abducted Americans. But the incident captured on camera does match what authorities say happened, as well as the photos that CNN has confirmed and geolocated. McGee's aunt tells CNN that she saw a video on Sunday that did show her niece being kidnapped. She said she recognized her blonde hair, as well as the clothing that she was wearing. Now, look, investigators believe that the cartel likely mistook these Americans for Haitian smugglers. And look, again, these are friends who grew up together here in small town South Carolina. They are tight. The sister of one of them, Zendel Brown, says that the group was like glue when they were together. His family did speak with him on the trip down there. His sister now saying that she had a bad feeling and, and she told him that his mother is relying on faith and still holding out hope. I felt a little uneasy because I told him I had a dream. You know, I said, so I'm just checking on you. That's what I told him Thursday. And then, like I said, Friday morning, I texted and I didn't get anything. The waiting is the worst part. It, uh, it has its advantages and disadvantages, but however, no news is good news. Okay. That's the way I'm staying with it. No news is good news. Now, look, according to her family, this is actually the second time that McGee has gone to Mexico for a medical procedure. The first time was about two or three years ago. Uh, but Poppy, look, everybody is holding out hope that they are going to be returned safely, perhaps no one more than McGee's six children here in South Carolina. That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, Diane, thank you very much for the reporting. Yep. Mostly peaceful chaos. That was the depiction of January 6th on Fox News last night. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has just weighed in, announcing that he will discuss the, quote, outrageous manipulation from Tucker Carlson on the Senate floor in just moments from now. And Adam Kinzinger, who is one of the people that Tucker Carlson singled out, is going to join us live with his take next. So Tucker Carlson trying to rewrite history of January 6th of the Capitol attack. Fox News host revealing a small portion of the 40,000 hours of footage given to him and only him by the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Carlson used a portion of the video to try to sanitize the violence from that day. The crowd was enormous. A small percentage of them were hooligans. They committed vandalism. You've seen their pictures again and again. But the overwhelming majority weren't. They were peaceful, they were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol, they obviously revere the Capitol. So, Many were actually charged with crimes for what they did that day. 326 of them charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers or employees. Justice Department reports that 140 officers were assaulted at the Capitol. Some left with head wounds, cracked ribs. 
smashed spinal discs and burns. So joining us now, CNN senior political commentator and former Republican congressman and a member of the January 6th committee, Adam Kinzinger. Um, good morning. I was watching your face when he said that they actually revered the Capitol and you had a visceral, physical reaction. What were you thinking? Yes, yeah, it's disgusting. I mean, look, you know, the sad thing is you're going to have people that have only gotten their news on Fox News that are never going to have the opportunity to hear the truth. Because what, what Tucker Carlson employs here, he's employed it basically probably his entire time he's been a, a grifter TV show host because he knows better than this, by the way, is he takes he, he takes a cut scene and creates a straw man. So first off, on the opening there where he says, look, there's only like a handful of people here. I'm like, I know one of those rooms, particularly Statuary Hall, was filled with people. There's tons of pictures of that. At some point leading up to it being filled or after it's filled, there's going to be moments when there's only a few people in there. Secondarily, you look at like, okay, one of the things he said, Josh Hawley was running, yes, but so was every other member of the Senate. Like, okay, yeah, because there was violence that day. He said, Officer Sicknick didn't die at the riots. He was walking around at the end of the riots, at the end of the insurrection. Nobody ever claimed that Officer Sicknick died that moment. He died a day later. And then the Ray Up stuff saying, well, he was there 30 minutes after the thing. He creates a false, like, thing that has been claimed. So it's like, hey, look, there isn't purple paint, spray paint. And everybody said they spray painted the entire Capitol purple. Nobody said that. You just said that. But unfortunately, people are never going to see the truth. So the damage is already done, you're saying? I, I think so. Look, I think that in terms of history, nobody that believes any of that garbage Tucker was spewing, none of their kids will ever believe that garbage. And in fact, I think in five or 10 years, the people that believe the garbage today that have kids will never admit to their kids that they believed it. Because I think we set history straight on the committee. Um, but today... There are people that are so invested in the emotional politics and tribe that if Tucker gives them a narrative to hold on to that makes their side look okay, they're going to hold on to that, unfortunately. Well, Adam, he also invoked the committee several times saying essentially, you know, this is access, the footage that you had access to, parts of it that the committee did not air. Um, do you want to respond to that? And also, you know, that he's, he, he said you were, or you were a liar and Liz Cheney was a liar and that you guys perpetuated this lie. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, everybody knows, even in their heart, even those that think that uh, or that will say out loud that the insurrection didn't happen, they know in their heart that it did. So you can call me a liar all you want. I just know that means we're over the target, typically. Um, look, I, I can look at myself in the mirror. I know Tucker Carlson, he has a lot more money than I do, but it's probably much harder for him to wake up and look in the mirror uh, because he knows what he's doing to a country that I've sworn to defend both in uniform and in Congress that he's never taken that similar oath. So that's fine. Not everybody has to take that oath, but he hasn't. And I think that's clear. But look, in terms of saying that we've hidden this footage, oh, we had one of the most transparent hearings in history with the most footage we've ever shown in history. And every single almost uh, witness that came in front of us was a very partisan witness. They were all Republicans that came in front of this committee. <laughs> I like how you turn that. Um, what do you think of Kevin McCarthy? I mean, come on. Look, he Kevin has to be in power in his mind. Like he has no other opportunity, well, you know. And I think he made he I think he made the commitment to somebody that he would release us to Tucker Carlson. If he didn't say Tucker Carlson, 
then look, I know Kevin McCarthy. Whenever you're in a meeting with him, at some point he'll pull out his phone and say somebody famous he's texted with or knows because he, that's how he kind of feeds. Um, and I think he's just trying to win some points with Tucker Carlson. It's probably a brilliant move on his part, just straw, you know, straight up politically. Uh, I just so? also wouldn't be able to myself in the mirror. Well, because if you went over Tucker Carlson, if you give Tucker Carlson everything he wants, he's never going to say a bad word about you. And I got to tell you, between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson, they're even more powerful than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump gets his talking points from Tucker Carlson. All right. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> Adam's got the last word. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Today, Florida Republicans are poised to hand Governor Ron DeSantis a legislative win ahead of his anticipated presidential bid. The new proposals on the table. We'll explain them ahead. I don't think Trump's going to like that. I don't either. Florida lawmakers are returning to work today to kick off a 60-day legislative session. It's going to be a chance for Governor Ron DeSantis to really check off his wish list and maybe provide him with a campaign platform on the other side of it. With DeSantis's backing or urging, Republican lawmakers in the state have filed a slate of bills that deal with universal school vouchers, the death penalty, consolidating his power as governor, treatment for transgender children, and abortion, among many, many others. Joining us now from Miami is national political reporter Mark Caputo, who covers Florida politics incredibly closely. Mark, you know, this is kind of just this remarkable legislative session that they don't typically get this much national attention, this outsized attention. But obviously, with Governor DeSantis being primed for a presidential run, you know, what are you expecting it to look like over the next 60 days? I'm expecting the Florida lawmaking session to look like one giant rubber stamp. And it normally isn't like this for governors. But Ron DeSantis is a governor like no other that we've seen in the state. He is incredibly popular with the Republican base, more so if you look at Republican polling than Donald Trump in Florida. And the Republican legislators who control the legislature know this. And in addition to that, they have more than a two-thirds majority. So Democrats basically don't matter. And if you have more than a two-thirds majority in a legislative body, you can just steamroll the opposition. And lawmakers explicitly and in some cases implicitly admit like, look, this is a session to further Ron DeSantis', DeSantis ambitions and they're there to make it happen. So anything he wants, he's probably gonna get. And the real question is, what's he really gonna want? What's he really gonna get? And to what degree, if he runs for president, is it gonna help him against Donald Trump? Again, if he does. And then if somehow he wins, to what degree is he gonna be overextended in running against Joe Biden, who uh, still has not decided to announce his bid for presidency or re-election, but probably will very soon. Yeah, you said it's normally not like this, this kind of rubber stamp style yeah. situation. What do you hear privately from Republicans? Are they bothered by the way, because part of this is that he's consolidated a lot of power just as governor. Right. No, I mean, some lawmakers like at the margins, you're more moderate Republicans and they'll whisper this, they don't really like it. But a lot of them have basically been purged. If you're a Republican lawmaker, if you're a Republican official, same with a Democratic one, uh, part of your job is to get reelected. Uh, opposing Ron DeSantis, DeSantis has made quite clear, is a pathway to irrelevancy, mm -hmm. at least in the Florida Republican Party. So they're there to kind of boost him and to go along with him. And also understand this, this used to be a swing state, Florida did. This is a place where Ron DeSantis, when he first ran for 
for governor, pardon me, I almost said president, in 2018, won by less than half a percentage point. In November, he won by nearly 20 percentage points. It is an outsized margin that we haven't seen in this state. The biggest margin that we saw for a reelection of a governor was Jeb Bush in 2002 when he was at the height of his power in the immediate afterglow of 9-11 when his brother, then the president, was riding a high. Uh, Ron DeSantis blew that out of the water. Now, yeah. one of the things I should mention, not only is DeSantis expecting the legislature to rubber stamp his agenda, he's also not only running against Democrats and the woke left or however he, he wants to describe it, he's also running against the mainstream news media. So as long as the mainstream news media kind of covers him in a sloppy way, gets its facts wrong, he's going to be all over that like, um, like white on rice, so to speak. And what you're going to see from DeSantis, as you've seen in his rise, is an ability to capitalize on that. We saw that with COVID in 2020, when a lot of media coverage of Florida was a little over the top and a little hysterical, and he took advantage of that. And ever since then, you've seen him time and time again go back to that well. And if you just look back at the last legislative session with all of the controversy he was mired in, again, he wound up winning by nearly 20 percentage points. So to a degree, voters, at least in this state, are either tuning out the news media, not believing it, and preferring to, to, preferring to support Ron DeSantis, uh, at least as a, as a gubernatorial candidate. Not sure about president. We'll have to see. Yeah, well, and it's easier to use the media as a foil than, uh, you know, your actual potential opponent, someone like former President Trump, who is also there in Florida. Mark Caputo, thank you. We're also going to take a deeper look thank into you. Florida's education bill. That's ahead with documentary filmmaker Ken Burns, who is going to join us here on set. I had an emotional plea from Bruce Willis's wife. Please don't be yelling at my husband, asking him how he's doing or whatever, the woo-hooing and the yippee-ki-yays. Just don't do it, okay? Who she's now calling out in the wake of her husband's dementia diagnosis. For the video people, please don't be yelling at my husband, asking him how he's doing or whatever, the woo-hooing and the yippee-ki-yays. Just don't do it, okay? Um, give him a space allow for our family or whoever's with him that day to be able to get him from point A to point B safely. That is Emma Willis, wife of movie superstar Bruce Willis, pleading with the paparazzi to stop yelling at him when they see him in public. The family recently announced that Willis has a speaking disorder called aphasia, and that has progressed into a form of dementia known as FTD. Joining us now is someone who is all too familiar with the struggles of helping a famous loved one with a debilitating neurological disorder, moves through the world. Ashley Campbell, she, of course, you know her for many reasons. She's a country singer, also the daughter of the legendary, legendary Glenn Campbell, who died from Alzheimer's disease in 2017. Ashley, good morning and thank you. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell me why you want to be here. Why is it important to speak out for? It's the Willis family today. It was your family before. It is so many American families. I saw what Mrs. Willis posted and I, I just really identified with her and, and empathized because it's so important for people with dementia to maintain a sense of normalcy and a social life as long as they can and, and also to not be harassed uh, because being confused is very, very upsetting. Um, I'm not sure where Mr. Willis is in his in his progression, but I'm just I'm glad he's still going out and that he has people that love him that much. You know, um, I was just telling you in the break, uh, 
how moved I and so many of us were by the CNN film just a couple of years ago about your dad and about his life. And, and it tracks you and your family and your journey through this disease as it progress, progresses with him. I want to play a clip of that for people. This is a clip of your testimony before Congress. And it was featured in the 2015 CNN film, Glenn Campbell, All Be Me. Here you were. I think a person's life is comprised of memories, and that's exactly what this disease takes away from you. Like a memory of my dad taking me fishing in Flagstaff when I was a little girl, or playing banjo with my dad while he plays guitar. Now when I play banjo with my dad, um, it's getting harder for him to follow along. And it's getting harder for him to recall my name. And that was him next to you, right? Yes. What is your message to so many people who feel lost right now with this? My message is if you're going through this, if you have a family member who's going through this, um, community is so, so integral. Um, being surrounded by love and support and, and staying as active and social as you can. Um, He's just stimulation and and love because every moment is precious. The clock is ticking and and every moment counts. So you wrote this song. I want to end by playing a little clip of it um, called Remember for Him. Uh, here it is. song is called Remembering. Tell me about writing it. I wrote it when I first moved to Nashville just after my dad's tour ended. And I, I wanted to talk about the fact that he took care of me my whole life. And then now the roles were reversed and it was my job to take care of him and to give him reassurance. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it helps a lot of other families as they go through what yours did. Ashley, thank you very much. Thank you. It's so nice to hear from her on such an issue that so many people are thinking about. Also this morning, we're tracking news out of Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis, he's promised major reforms for higher education. Now a bill is looking to turn those measures into law. We're going to talk to the documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns, why he thinks that bill is deeply flawed and an assault on liberties. That's next. the state of Florida, we're proud to stand for education, not indoctrination in our schools. What? So that was Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis underscoring his stance on education before a packed crowd at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library this weekend. Now, one of the marquee bills that could define his agenda could soon go before the Republican-led legislature, Florida House Bill 999. If passed, it would limit what people are allowed to study at public universities and colleges. The bill reads, in part, general education core courses may not suppress or distort significant historical events or include a curriculum that teaches identity politics, such as critical race theory, or defines American history as contrary to the creation of a new nation based on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. The bill has drawn widespread criticism from educators and Florida Democrats. And it also caught the attention of our next guest, renowned documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. He tweeted in part, 
by trying to dictate what teachers can and cannot teach, Florida House Bill 999 is an assault on the very liberties are articulated by the founders and something that all Americans should speak out against. Ken Burns is here now. Also, he has a new book out, Our America, A Photographic History. It is fantastic. We have been thumbing through it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You were moved enough to write about this bill and what's going on with the whole idea of critical race theory and not teaching the full history of this country. Why? You know, what makes America great is not the suppression of ideas or the pursuit of every corner of those ideas may lead us or the facts. It's it's about who we are and how we investigate who we are and celebrate the diversity of who we are. All of these bills that DeSantis and others are doing limit our ability to understand who we are and are not inclusive. They're exclusive. They're, they're narrowing the focus of what is and isn't American history. It's terrifying. It feels like a Soviet system or, you know, the way the Nazis would build a Potemkin village. Tucker Carlson's doing the same thing with the footage from uh, 1-6. It's just uh, a, a kind of rewriting of history at the most dangerous level. It's, it's, it's a huge threat to our republic. I'm doing, Don, a film right now working on a major series on the history of the American Revolution, and I can tell you that Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and George Washington and John Adams and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton are rolling over in their graves if they think that this person is carrying the mantle of what it is to be American. You're such a treasured chronicler of history and of our times. You know, I was reading something you said about race and how it's like touched almost every project you've done when you speak about that. How do you think that we'll look back and reflect on the period that we are living in now? Well, I think there's some really positive aspects. And I think part of what we're seeing in DeSantis and others is a kind of reaction to anything that makes it nothing but a kind of neat, tidy, white picket fence, morning in America kind of view of things. This is a complicated world. And race is in everything we touch, not because it's, it's, um, I'm looking for it, but because we were founded on the idea that all men were created equal. The guy who wrote that owned hundreds of human beings and didn't see the contradiction or the hypocrisy. And so our whole story is based in a discussion in race along with the meaning of freedom. And that's complicated, too, because freedom, uh, you know, what I want, personal freedom, comes into conflict with what we need, a kind of collective freedom. So there is that great struggle. Why are you so frightened of telling your children about the struggles? We go to gym class at six years old and have somebody yelling at us that we're not doing something right. But somehow you can't move over to history and find out that something in the past wasn't quite right. This this doesn't make any sense. It's a disconnect. And what it's attempt is to narrow, as I'm saying, our view of ourselves into one narrow thing. As our country becomes more diverse, which is wonderful, and more complicated, and, and lots of manifestations, that's who we are. That's been our strength from the very beginning. I want people to look at this photo you have of John Lewis, the late Congressman John Lewis, and he has his arms crossed there. It's, it's near, near, near the end. It's the last photo. the last photo, the right? And it's near the end of his life. And it really speaks to this moment. This, this took you 15 years. This yeah. is a passion project, nights and weekends. But there's a reason that it, it came out recently. It's not brand new, right? The New Republic says this book speaks to our moment precisely because it refuses to lie about the past. 
I just wanted to include everything. There's nothing wrong with that. You'll see kids playing uh, guns in the middle of the Dust Bowl. You'll see girls dancing on the beach in Jamestown, Rhode Island. You'll see other playfulness. You'll see the beauty of this continent, but you'll see all of the things that we also are. And you know what that New Republic thing is, I think it may be the best review I've ever gotten in my life. Mm -hmm. They said, this is an anti-fascist book, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we see is this narrowing and saying only you can treat one thing is right out of the authoritarian playbook. If a company, Disney, disagrees with me, I change their tax status. If somebody, um, you know, a, a state employee disagrees with me, I fire them. This is not a democracy. That's an authoritarian... There's a reason you put a child on the front, right? I mean, this not only is a photo of 1949, right? Yeah. By your, by your, your mentor, Jerome Liebling. But it's also about what are we creating for, for our kids. That's right. I wanted to say this is all of us. So you'll see photographs in here from very famous people and from anonymous people and from sort of what we'd call snapshots. There's ordinary folks or so-called ordinary folks, and there's great people. There's a picture of Abraham Lincoln in there. But he's not on the cover. This kid is as important as Abraham Lincoln. That's the heart of a democracy. It says that we value every individual life. And this kid with his improbable hockey shirt, with his coat, the rakish hat, his attitude, he's looking at my mentor, Jerome Liebling, and they're seeing each other as equals. And there's no communication in this world except among equals. And the kind of hierarchies that, that a Tucker Carlson and a Ron DeSantis are trying to superimpose over us are extremely extraordinarily dangerous to this experiment. You call it a narrowing, and we have to run, but is it, what is it? Racism, right? And, well, and I think it's right now, there's, it's just white supremacy. There's a kind of fear of the other. And so what you're seeing, we saw it in our film on the Holocaust, you know, it's easy to make a person other. I, I, let me just put it simply, Don, this way. I have been making films for almost 50 years about the U.S., capital U, capital S. But I've also been making films about us, mm. the two-letter lowercase plural pronoun. And anytime anybody tells you that it's anything else other than us, there's only us. And when somebody tells you there's a them, move away, move away. There's no them, there's only us. Ken Burns, always a pleasure. Thank, Thank you very much. We'll be right back. Time now for the morning moment. The actress Halle Bailey revealing that the newest Little Mermaid doll, a replica of herself, she revealed it in this emotional Instagram video. I am gonna cry. This is the new Little Mermaid doll. I am literally choking up because this means so much to me and to have one that looks like me, that's my favorite Disney character, is very surreal. And look, she even has my mole. See? Bailey growing emotional as her post was met with widespread celebration. Even the iconic Barbie brand commented they believed it was well-deserved. Nice. That. CNN Newsroom starts now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.